far as the prophetic history of the Lord establishing us here, but also all of the prophetic words, all of those things. Um, but if you've heard your, our prophetic history, you actually hear that it actually begins like when I was like 16 years old. I read a book called The Light and the Glory when I was in high school. And in reading that book, and all of you that have been here for any amount of time, this is kind of like old news, but just so we can actually bring us up to date on why we're doing what we're doing. In that book, it actually speaks of John Winthrop, who was actually the first governor of Massachusetts. Here's History 101 for you. John, John Winthrop was the first governor of Massachusetts, and aboard the Arabella, as he was coming to the New England region, he actually wrote and drafted something called the Model for Christian Charity. And in that, he was actually prophetically declaring what Boston and the New England region would be. And the extraordinary thing is he actually articulated Matthew chapter 5. Is anybody here familiar with Matthew chapter 5? Um, it's Beatitudes is kind of how it's most commonly known. But right after the Beatitudes, actually this is exactly what Jesus says. He says, you are the salt of the earth. This is what John Winthrop was speaking over Boston. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. And he declared Boston to be a city set upon a hill that cannot be hidden. The New Living Translation actually says a city set upon a hilltop cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So, John Winthrop, I'm going to give this really quick for you. So, 16 years old, I at that point knew I would forever be in New England. I understand my feet will go other places. I definitely have a heart for other places to establish churches and houses of prayer. But at 16 years old, when I began to read the history of New England, my heart burned inside of me saying, God had a dream. God had a dream and it hasn't been fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And guess what? That dream hasn't ended. It's actually still there as an invitation. And so it was at that time that I, at 16 years old, Christian high school, it was part of my high school curriculum to read that whole series, that I began to say to my high school, they're, you know, they're doing the, where are you going to go to college? What are you going to do? What are your life's plans? And I began to say, everything in this book, I'm going to live to see this happen. Come on. I want to see the dream of God for New England come to pass. So that's really what began to ignite my heart. The extraordinary thing is, I won't bore you with all the details, I'm in Redding, California. One of Bill Johnson's prophets gives me crazy word, and it actually has to do with Boston, all of this stuff. I'm here, first week I move into this house, this random prophet shows up at my doorstep. I'm like, dude, how'd you find me? You know, like, <laughs> I saw you in Redding. Like, you gave me that crazy word. And for those of you who know, it was about Bradford College, what the Lord would do there, the student volunteer missions movement, all of that. So he's there at my doorstep, and he said, oh, I've been following you. He said, I've been following the Justice House of Prayer online. He said, I know, you know, and I'm like, dude, what's your name again? You know, like, this is crazy. He stands in front of me, and he says, I came to tell you something. I came to tell you that the mantle of Governor Winthrop is upon your shoulders. And hear me, every word that I get, I do not take it as Bethany Temple has the mantle of, it's the house of prayer and what we as a corporate community are called to carry. And what was the mantle of Governor Winthrop? He declared Boston to be a city set upon a hill 
and a light to all peoples. So you have to understand, as we're launching kind of more intentionally, I'll say, of identifying we are a church, you have to understand our understanding of church, we're going to look at scripture today as far as what the church is called to be. We're not saying we're gathering together and now we're going to become a politically correct group. Bethany is going to put aside all of her other former teachings on justice and so that now we can grow a body. Not at all. We're going to look at scripture today and understand through the word of God what it is to be a church. But first and foremost, Matthew 5, Jesus gave. So he in Matthew 5 is giving the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are literally the constitution for Christianity. It's kind of like if you want to know Christianity 101, look at the Beatitudes. And then Jesus goes on to say, you are salt, you are light. He identifies the church of Jesus Christ as salt and light. I highly encourage you, Matthew, Henry, uh, whatever commentary that you're into, begin to look really closely at the elements of salt and light. If you have any question, forget the church at large. I love when I sit, you know, in rooms full of pastors and they all start to articulate what the particular calling of their church is. You know, it's the calling of my church to come alongside culture and in no way to offend or address. Uh, You know, all of those, what your church, your church, no mystery here. Matthew 5, salt and light. You have it right there. And the extraordinary thing, and I love this, is actually when you study the, the understanding of salt, it's very similar to the parables about leaven. How many of you guys know the parable of, uh, of the leaven? It's actually that the, the woman, and let's just say the woman is known as the weaker vessel. We have the parable of the kingdom of heaven. It's likened to leaven. See, it actually says that she took three lumps of dough. She takes these three lumps and she's going to put leaven inside of them. The parable of the kingdom, that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The kingdom of heaven is salt. The kingdom of heaven is light. The understanding of leaven, this is what is extraordinary. Because, you know, we get, let's just be honest, we look at the church, it looks completely impotent, completely void of power, of authority, of a voice, of all of those things. Let's look at leaven. You have a lump of dough. In size and in quantity, it is larger than leaven. Leaven is like almost a, uh, small enough that you could miss it. It's almost insignificant. It, it literally, dough itself just absolutely makes the, the leaven look completely small and insignificant. But you know, what you have to understand is that is actually one of the things that makes the leaven so effective. It does not come by force. It doesn't come by strength. It's almost, to be honest, in some ways, the dough is the mass. It looks like it would be the greater influencer. But what happens is, is when you sow leaven, it begins to completely take over. Come on. Come it on. begins to be the determining quality. Yes, yes, yes. It is not overtaken by dough. And so this is actually these understandings of salt and light is the understanding even of leaven. It's these qualities. How about John? You guys are familiar with John where it's actually talking about Jesus. And it's saying that the darkness cannot overcome the light. That wherever there is light, that darkness cannot overcome it. It's this understanding that this is what the church was called to be. So that to reside in a place and almost to acquiesce to a place of ineffectiveness, we're going to gather in our four little walls. We're in big, old, ugly, godless Cambridge. 
And we're just going to hope we can hold on till Jesus comes. Just pull a few little students in and hope we can encourage them and just get the intellectual demons off of them. And somehow that we're just going to hold on instead of understanding salt and light and leaven. They all have influencing power. That is the place that they are there to influence and to determine the environment and the atmosphere that they are in. So being in Cambridge... We are not here to say Cambridge is godless and they really don't like churches. So we're going to do whatever we have to do just to keep the peace. We have the understanding that we are here as salt and, and light. And more what I'm going to move into is the understanding of having expectation of how it is the Lord desires to use the church of Jesus Christ. One of the words that the Lord gave me when we were first launching, Jude Fuquay. Anybody know Jude Fuquay? Jude Fuquay? Anybody remember Jude Fuquay from back in the day? He's out in Ventura, California now. You know, he, I'm sure everybody else in the room, it was when we were launching the first 40 days, and he had flown out to be a part of it with us. Um, he gave me a word, and I'm sure nobody else in the room thought it was like a significant or great word. But probably it's one of the words that has shook me to the very core of who I am. And I remember when he spoke it to me, I thought, if, if there's nothing else that I do with my life, if the, every other thousandth word just falls to the ground, that's okay. This one word, it just so spoke to who I was. He said that through what we were launching that, that six years ago, he said, the Lord is going to restore glory and honor to the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. And it's that understanding that even in this region, as much as the church has been blasphemed, as you guys all know, we just had uh, the big debate on uh, Beacon Hill regarding the bathroom bill and those that want to then restrict certain genders from certain bathrooms. It has all to do with equality of all. So a man could walk. We have one bathroom here. <laughs> I guess you could consider it transgender. <laughs> but in all essence, if we did have a male and female bathroom, if we ever saw a gentleman walking in the female bathroom, and we said, excuse me, sir, that's the ladies' room. There's another restroom assigned for you. He could look right at me and say, who are you to determine my gender? I'm heading in there. And I could have other women. I could have even children in there. And I cannot deter that person legally. This is the debate that's happening on Beacon Hill. Wow. This is the level of, and in all honesty, as pastors and leaders, you begin to sit back and kind of go, well, should I even go to the public hearing, and should I even say anything? I mean, because I go to them, and to be honest with you, the state house is filled just with transgender people, and there is, they are out in such force. But the understanding, and this is what we're going to look at through Scripture, is the understanding of salt and light and even the power of leaven, of that which looks completely insignificant, what looks powerless, what has the appearance of one thing, but literally has the, the effect and the influence of something completely different. So Matthew 5.14. So if you begin to go, why are we calling ourselves Hilltop Church? A city set upon a hilltop cannot be hidden. It's the fulfillment. We are believing for the fulfillment of what Governor Winthrop prophesied over this city. Is that that is what Boston would once again be. So I just, in, just before we move on from the scripture, verse 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see. It's visible. Men see your good works. And what, is it, what does it actually finish with here? It says, And glorify your Father in heaven, that men would glorify your Father in heaven, that this is the supreme end, is that men would glorify our Father in heaven, that we're jealous 
for his glory and that he would receive the glory that is due his name. So Matthew 16, 18, if you want to turn there with me. This is one of the most fundamental scriptures when we're going to begin to talk about what is the church, the function, what is the function of the church, the identity of the church. Most of you are very, very well acquainted with this passage of scripture. And we're going to focus on one key word specifically. Matthew 16, 18 um, is where we're going to focus, but we're going to begin in verse 13. He, um, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? The, the, the Son of Man? And then verse 14. Uh, so they said, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elisha. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said that, to them, But who do you say that I am? Verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Number one, it's the rock of the revelation of Jesus Christ. He had a revelation of Jesus Christ. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Number one, this is the place where he actually is identifying and using the word church, or in the Greek, ekklesia. He literally, for the first time, is identifying that you... And I, I, this is not the point of my message today, but I can't help but touch on it because us as a younger generation, I guess I'll say like 30, when I say younger generation, I mean 35 and younger. Because <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm like, hold on one second, my younger generation. Uh, there is such dispute about what the church is. There is even such a disgruntled, and I can speak personally because I have many of them in my life, in my surrounding sphere of influence, of what the church is, and this almost identity that somehow the church, as long as I'm meeting with my family in my house and I'm reading scripture, and I'm discipling my children, I am the church of Jesus Christ. Now you have to hear me. I read scripture in my house. I worship in my house. We do consider that our house is a house of prayer, and we are pastoring our child. We're, we're all about it. But even more than that, the understanding in the New Testament of what the church of Jesus Christ is. This is what I want to say. We, as a disgruntled, offended, independent generation, don't have the right to define what church is. Thank you. It is not up to us. It is not as ours to touch. Because Jesus said, I will build my church. So it's the church that he builds. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When he used this word church, you can't kind of like identify it and classify it and define it how you want it. It literally means a gathering together of the saints. So if you ain't a gathering together with the saints, if you're thinking, well, my wife and me and my children, we're the church right here. Number one, I just want to ask you, in all honesty, what measure of influence and even, uh, I guess I'll say, effect are you going to have upon culture and society with your isolated self? Yep, 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 yep. No, really. It's true. Come on. 
the church. He said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That word church literally means uniting together. The coming together of one body. It's literally taking independent features and aspects and all coming together for a common cause and a common good. The identification that we are the church of Jesus Christ. See, when you begin to isolate yourself. Really what you've done is you've stood in judgment of the church. Yep, 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 yep. That's really what you've done. Is you, you've said that I don't agree with how the church... Let, let's just be honest. Is the church perfect? Absolutely no. not. Are we yet to what Jesus said? That he is coming for a, church, a glorious church without spot or wrinkle? We aren't there yet. But this is what I want to say. Is, and, I, and I encourage you to open up your mouth in your small groups, on your campus groups, you know, wherever you're meeting and you begin to hear people disgruntled with the church. And, you know, and I love so many people want to reference books of like, it's a trend, like all across America, people are leaving the institutionalized church. Yeah, it's a trend. Come I on. understand that. Come on. But first and foremost, what you're doing, first and foremost, is you're standing in judgment yeah. of the institution. And I'm going to say yeah. this to you. You have no right to criticize. You have no right to stand in judgment of something that you are not willing to be a part of and be an answer and a solution to. Unless you're willing to look and say, okay, all right, we're not lining up with it here. Like, we are not caring for the poor and the widow the way that the word of God declares that we should. So I am going to be a part of this body, and I'm going to be an answer to that. If you are not willing to be a part of the solution, let's just be honest. It is said of Jesus that literally that he gave himself for the church of Jesus Christ. He gave himself for the church of Jesus Christ. He didn't stand back and go, you bunch of hypocrites, you losers, you ain't getting it. I'm going to stand afar off and judge you and hope you get it eventually. You know what he literally did? He laid down his life for the church of Jesus Christ. If you want a bone to pick with the church... You know what you need to do? You need to put your little fanny in a seat. And I'm not even saying, here, please, if if you're of the offended type, go find another one. (laughs) Yeah, amen. Put your fanny somewhere. Shut your lip. And begin to say, how can I be a solution to the problem? How can I change this? Oh, it's good. What can I do? What can I do to make sure that the church of Jesus Christ is coming to the fullness of what Christ did? Amen. Amen. We, we will not touch the topic of t- uh, tithing today, but I have a huge issue with the, the money perceptions in this generation. You cannot even say that you love the Church of Jesus Christ if you feel like you're obligated to tithe to it, and it's not something that you find joy in investing what you have because you want to see it come to fullness of strength. We, we, our theology, this younger generation, we are so whack. So whack because you know what we do is we take everything out of context on how it suits me, it serves me, it caters to me, it justifies my thinking and my theology rather than taking the whole counsel of God. Come on. So Church of Jesus Christ, this is where we find, this is what Jesus was saying, my church, my church, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. The church is a gathering. It's a, it's a uniting together. The coming together to be one body. Yes. But even more than that, literally this word ecclesia, it's a governing body. It's the legislative body in the earth. 
This word literally means to command and give order. Now let me ask you, is that the way that we think of the church? No. That it's the governing body in the earth and it's there to command and to give order. But this is ecclesia. Now, let me just remind you. So we have, and we pray this, we talk this, we preach this in the house of prayer. We have one Tim two. I, oh, sorry. First Timothy two. <laughs> the dream. One Tim two. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> We have 1 Timothy 2. For those of you that are not acquainted with it, it's where Paul says that when you gather together, first and foremost, to lift up prayers and supplication for all men. But then he goes as far to say, but first and foremost for those that are in authority. That's what it says. And it says that you may lead quiet and peaceable lives. Number one, do you think that the Apostle Paul would give us a charge to pray for something? that we actually will not see ourselves affected in. So do you think he kind of like dangled this little carrot? And it's pretty powerful. I mean, if somebody wants to turn there really quick, 1 Timothy 2 is a powerful, he's not suggesting. He's telling us, when you gather together, first and foremost, make prayers and supplications on behalf of all men. And then he, he individualizes and calls out those that are in authority that you may lead quiet and peaceable lives. He's actually giving us this promise, but also this chart. So the question then becomes, if we're not leading quiet and peaceable lives, if there's godless legislation in our land, if we're seeing unrighteousness run rampant, maybe that's traced back to the fact that the church has not taken First Timothy 2, the charge that's been given to us. Maybe, maybe that's the issue, that we can't st- stand back and go, oh, Obama, or Devel Patrick, and all that. You know, instead, the church has not taken up the call yes. that Paul has given to us. Yes. Because if he gave us the invitation, it's because there's a promise and there's an authority to be released upon the church that we've yet to apprehend and lay a hold of. So 1 Timothy 2, this... He did not give us this call to waste our time. He's not saying, well, gather together and yeah. throw up a few pitiful ones and do it with all hopelessness and despair because you know it ain't going to work and it ain't going to go nowhere. Mm-hmm. He gave us the charge because it's a promise right. and there's a window of understanding. Yes. Come on. Come on. We're going to look at two biblical examples before we close out here. Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 9, we're going to do Old Testament and then we will solidify it in the New Testament for all you folk that want my, the New Testament example. And it's no good for you <laughs> if you, <laughs> you don't see it in the New Testament. <laughs> okay. Alright, before I move on actually to this example of uh, in Daniel and then we're going to move to Acts chapter 12, I just want to make sure I touch base on uh, verse... 19 of what we just read when Jesus said, um, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The understanding of authority that has been entrusted to the church. It's, I'm going to just say, we can't even go into all of it today, but it is so vast and mysterious. We have yet to tap into the realms of possibility through prayer. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. The realms of possibility, it's the untouched weapon of the church. Nobody has yet to, maybe we pick it up for seasons, we might do like a real hard intense 40 days or a real hard intense 21 or 
all of those things, but it's something that we, I, I find off, more often than not, we lay it down rather than continuing to exercise and practice and go after the depths. And that's actually what we're going to look at in Daniel 9 here is really the heights and the depths that are available through prayer. So we find in Daniel chapter 9, verse 3, this is actually Daniel saying, uh, Then I set my face towards the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O, o Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of mercy to those that love him and with those who keep his commands. We have sinned and committed iniquity, and we have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your, your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and to our princes, to our fathers, and to all of the people of the land. O oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is in this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all of Israel, those near and those far off in all countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. Daniel goes on, he's literally just rending his heart before the Lord, and he's confessing the sin of his people. For those of you that don't know, Daniel was brought into Babylonian captivity as a young man, as a teenager. And the time and the space where we are here is about when he's in his 70s. One of the things that it's actually said of Daniel, that when the king put out a decree forbidding him to pray. How many of you guys know the old story of uh, Daniel in the lion's den? The way they actually threw him into the den was because they actually refused. They sent out a decree that he could not pray. And then actually what it says is that Daniel did what he had done since the days of his youth. He knelt down at his window. He did this three times a day. And he prayed. The extraordinary thing, number one, about Daniel is that it says, and it's the word of God, it says, as he did daily since the days of his youth. He daily made supplication before the Lord. He was, un I'm going to tell you, I am completely mystified by Daniel. I pray for America. I do. But when I think about the resolution and the resolve daily to have something that you lock onto in the place of intercession, that could be a family member, that could be a city, that could be a physical healing that you need. It could even be there's an area of brokenness in your life that you want to see the Lord move. Something that you lock onto and you literally say, until I see this take place, until I see the fulfillment of what God has promised. I will not move. Daily? How about Daniel? Three times a day. So then we actually find from this place, this is absolutely extraordinary. So he's making supplication. We find in verse 20, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sins and the sins of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before, before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yet while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being, uh, beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reaching me about the time of evening offering. Verse 22. He informed me and talked to me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have come, come forth to give you skill to understand. Verse 23. At the beginning of your supplications and, com and, and command went forth, I have come to tell you. Number one, the angel is actually telling him that from the beginning of his supplications, the command went forth. Gabriel was sent to him. If you actually kind of fast forward a little bit to uh, chapter 10, 
Again, we actually find Daniel in the place of intercession, and this time we find the angel coming to speak to him. And this time, actually, what the angel says, um, uh, actually, I'll back up, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 10, suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on my palm, the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you while I was speaking this word, while he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling, verse 12. And he said to me, do not fear, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. Say that out loud. Say, I have come because of your words. The question then remains, what if Daniel didn't pray? Come on. Oh my. The angel came in response because of Daniel's words. See, this is one of the things, if you want to talk about the funk theology of our generation, somehow we have come to believe that prayer, that when we pray or when we seek the Lord, that somehow you've entered into striving. How many of you guys have heard kind of, and I won't even get into names of movements and books that are out there or videos I've seen, but how many of you guys have ever heard the, the use of the understanding, the finished work of the cross, to somehow mean that there is nothing on our part that we need to do. It is all completed. The finished work of the cross is your salvation. Amen. It has been purchased. Amen. It is complete. That's it is right. done. There is nothing That's you right. need to do to earn your salvation. Right. That Amen. is the finished work of the cross. But now when it comes into the legislating and the releasing of the kingdom of God upon the earth, yeah. Yeah. there is a part that you have to play. And this yeah. is the understanding that Daniel had. Amen. Is literally what provokes a man to pray three times a day daily. I'm going to tell you something. It's not because he was striving. No, 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 no. And you know what? If it was striving, he never would have lasted for 70 years. Because striving, you burn out. You get tired. You get discouraged. When you, He didn't see the results for 70 years. No results for 70 years. But he keeps going. What kind of fortitude? You know what it is? See, if we have the understanding and the mentality that somehow prayer is striving or it's works or it's fleshly or you're trying to earn something from God, then you have yet to understand. You don't get it. That it's not about what you're doing. You are engaging the yes. heavenly realm. And literally, yes. while Daniel was praying, angels were being released. Angels were going forth. It says that the command that from the first day that Daniel spoke, the command went forth, and they were released. And it actually, I'm not going to go into all the detail because we're short on time here, but it does go into great extent regarding the Prince of Persia, that this angel Michael literally says that he was warring and wrestling against the Prince of Persia. The extraordinary thing is that if we think that somehow praying for the ending of abortion, praying for deliverance for the homosexual community, praying for revival in Boston, you know, hear me, and I, I understand <laughs> You know, we kind of get to that place where, like, okay, I'm just going to commune with the Lord, and it's the finished work of the cross. And Jesus, if you want revival, you're going to bring it. Nothing I need to do. Nothing I need to do. Nothing I need to do. Other than the very simple fact that he literally has entrusted the authority to you. Yep, yep. And what we actually find from the word of God is he will not move apart from man. Amen. That he has legislated and given and delegated 
a realm of authority to you that he actually is not taking back. He's literally saying, I am waiting for you to release the word. Angels will move at the sound of your voice. Demons are driven back. And then we find Daniel. We find Daniel, literally this man who looked through biblical prophecy. And literally in looking in biblical prophecy, he went, oh my God, I know my assignment. He got his assignment from reading the Old Testament prophets. In that place, he recognized the fullness of time has come. The fullness of time has come. He saw a window into something, but it was the part that he had to play. Because angels moved at the sound of his voice. New Testament, you want a New Testament example of the praying church, angels moving, and literally a king dying, an ungodly king dying, God intervening? Go to Acts chapter 12. So here is a story. We did Book of Acts last year. I think it took us how many weeks? Went through every chapter of the Book of Acts. <laughs> we got Book of Acts. <laughs> We're crying out for it. Uh, but we actually find in Acts chapter 12. This is where it says, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested, arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but... Everybody say but. but. Constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Okay, so new, this is New Testament. Constant prayer was offered for him to God by the church. You know what the theology in our generation? Okay, so I work with an organization that sends missionaries to unreached people groups, and mostly in Muslim countries. We'll get a call, an email, a text. I mean, crazy situations like missionary families that go over borders like a father that shouldn't just literally going in to bring bibles to somebody gets caught in crossfire can't get out he's got his family three hours over the border waiting for him nobody thinks he's gonna make it out alive like those kind of things our generation of young people would read these kind of texts caught in crossfire muslims have him they've abducted him finish work of the cross Jesus, have your way. If it's your will that he die, let him die. Oh, Jesus. You are sovereign. Have your way. I tr- I'm not going to strive. I'm not, I'm not going to contend. This, it's all up to Jesus. The will of God be done. Will of God be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You know, we kind of, this crazy, so here's Peter. Peter's in prison and he has a church that is making constant supplication on his behalf. Were they striving or did they have a window? Because you know what? They obviously had a window because the angel of the Lord was released, delivers Peter out of prison. It's supernatural. It's power of God. But you know what it is? Is They tapped into the realm of possibility of what God has made available by the praying church. And 99.9% of what we suffer and what the church is going through.
going through is simply because we have yet to lay hold of the realms of possibility in prayer. So it goes on to say, constant prayer was offered to God from him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. And the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him. And a light light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up saying, arise quickly. And his chains fell off his head. Hands, verse 8, then the angel said to him, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. Verse 9, so he went out and followed him and he did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, and then when they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. Literally, the gates were obeying the prayers of the saints. And they went out, and they went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him in verse, verse 11. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent this angel and has delivered me from the hands of Herod and from all all the expectation of the Jewish people, verse 12, so that when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Together praying. They're still praying. They're praying until it's accomplished. They're praying until it's completed. Verse 13, and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl, I love this, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. Verse 14, and when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So she said to, they said to him, it is an angel. Now Peter continued knocking. <laughs> they wouldn't let him in. And when they opened the door, they saw him and they were astonished. But uh, motioning to them with his hand to keep silent. He basically charges them to keep silent. Um, And then if you drop down, we're going to just go to verse 21. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. Verse 22. And the people kept shouting, the voice of God and not of man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. Because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. (laughs) So here we have this, they have an ungodly king. I mean, let's just be honest. In America, how how much complaining and whining and how limited we think we are if we have an ungodly ruler. Oh, we're just like limited and there's nothing we can do. The the understanding, he was persecuting them. They were literally, like, none of us are being thrown in jail here. Like, none of us are going... (laughs) None of us are being persecuted to that extent. And in the midst of it, do we see how God moves on behalf of the church? And the word of God grew, the, the word of God grew and multiplied. The exponential increase of... So we can't blame it on America. We can't, I'm America. It's hard. It's hard here. It's so hard. It's cold. It's dark. It's barren. And that's why the Church of Jesus Christ ain't growing. The fact of the matter is they had tapped into an understanding. They had tapped into a reality. I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail Amen. against it. Whatever you bind in heaven will be bound in yes, earth, and whatever yes, you loose in heaven. They actually grabbed a hold of this understanding and this revelation, and they were the living embodiment of that. So the understanding that they were not striving. That this was not a place. I'm actually really quickly going to close out. I'm going to, you don't even have to turn there because I'm going to rattle these so I can get through them because we have something to move on to next week and I don't want to tie up this message <laughs> next week. The understanding of, I guess I'll say it this way. When we see delays to answer prayer. So we'll just take an example. We'll take the ending of abortion. How long, I mean, so probably older people have been praying, sorry, <laughs> older people, I mean, for the ending of abortion yes. in America, for yes. how long? I mean, in all honesty, I can only say that with fervency, with investment, with zeal, seven years for me. That's, that's not a long time. But for, I mean, it's been legalized more than 40 years. So the praying and the answer to prayer... This is the issue here, is oftentimes we lack understanding of even the, the embracing of what it is to wrestle and to struggle through something. And I want to close out on this point because I think even sometimes, let's just talk like personal, let's bring it out of corporate, corporate church, corporate reality, even to the place personally, that when we're wrestling and believing, let's just be honest, we all are believing God for things, yeah. whether it's individual breakthrough, whether it's individual healing, whether it's individual deliverance, there are personal issues that all of us wrestle and are believing God for. And what happens when there's delays to those things, we grow disheartened. We then begin to question, well, did God not really promise that? And he said that whatever. I mean, we really go into a place of almost vacillating whether we believe the promises of God. That's really what happens. And from that place, and I'm just going to say this to you, it's almost, and I, and I know this is a strong word, but it's almost that there's a place of hopelessness, that we begin to come into agreement with the enemy. We come into the agreement with the enemy that somehow I have this sin and I'm always going to have this sin. I'm just never going to get free, so I just need to learn to live with it or learn to cope with it or cater to, you know, all of those things. Or on a, on a, on a regional scale, we begin to embrace. Harvard is intellectual. It's godless. It always will be. Maybe we just need to believe for a move of God outside of Harvard. We begin to adapt our belief system and our expectation to our experiences. And this is what I want to say to you, whether it's individually whether it's corporately, I want you right now to identify any place that you feel hopeless. Oh, and you don't live in the realm of possibility. That is a demonic stronghold. It is not the mind of Christ. So if you begin to think about a physical healing for someone and you begin to think, oh my goodness, I've prayed for five years, there's just no... All of those things, whatever, wherever there may be a place that you feel a sense of hopelessness, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your job, you know, all of those kind of things, you need to understand that is not the Spirit of God. He in no way kind of has the finality to, this is the way it's going to be, this is the way it always has been, so just reside yourself here. The realm of possibility and the realm of faith, you can identify that that is where God resides. How many of you guys are familiar with the passage of Scripture? I, when I was like 21, 22, I so extensively studied it out in the Greek because every single word was like absolute life to me. I actually don't have it here today, but I, I, I didn't even realize I was going to share about this individual thing. But let me say it this way, is individually, there's a, there's a verse in Corinthians that says, Godly sorrow 
produces repentance. And it actually talks about the sorrow of the world actually produces death. So even whether it's corporately, and I really want to make sure we bring this individually, because sometimes we can talk about the Church of Jesus Christ, and we, we lack the understanding or the application to certain things individually, is the understanding that godly sorrow produces repentance. But there's a whole list of, oh, you know, I do actually have it. 2 Corinthians 7.10 um, produce, but this is actually, I'm going to read these words to you because in the Greek, this is what it produces. It produces earnestness. It produces eagerness. It produces indignation. It produces alarm. It produces longing. It produces readiness. It produces a desire for justice. So do you understand that even if, even if there's something in our life that is gravely wrong, even if we would identify it as a sin, whatever it may be, if it does not produce the godly sorrow, literally causes strength to arise within us and hope to overcome. If you find yourself in a place that you're feeling overcome by it, or overcome by circumstance, overcome by you can't get a new job, can't get a new house, all of those things, you can right there identify that that is not the Spirit of God. And that literally where he, even if it's a circumstance that needs to change inwardly, because obviously there's those as well, that literally with it, he is going to give you the grace, the capacity, the strength, the zeal, the desire to overcome. You'll in no way feel trapped or hopeless. That it's godly sorrow that literally impregnates us with hope. That when we see, even, even our broken, weakened, sin-stricken, when we see it in the light of His countenance, if we're seeing it rightly, we still are impregnated with hope to overcome. Because we understand His heart in the matter. And instead of being beaten, down and discouraged. See, that's the true sign that you've actually almost yielded to the, the yeah. mind of the enemy, is when you begin to almost feel so discouraged and disheartened that you can't rise up and wrestle against it. And that word wrestle, like I said, it's something that's actually despised in our generation. That somehow I'm living in a place of complete peace. He leads me beside the still waters. I'm not going to strive. I understand not striving in our flesh, but I'm going to give you these passages of scripture really quickly. First and foremost, you guys are familiar with the Apostle Paul. Philippians 3. Everybody is familiar with this passage of scripture. He says, not that I have already attained, but I press on. The Apostle Paul uses the word press. I mean, let's say, the Apostle of all apostles. <laughs> I, mean, let's, I mean, if you think about it, the birthing of the New Testament church, like what was actually seen through his life, and he wasn't actually standing back and saying, it's the finished work of the cross, I've attained it all. I'm at a place of perfect peace and rest. He actually used the word, I press on, which literally means that there is a place that he is exerting his strength and he is actually in active participation. And literally, what is he pressing on toward? That I may apprehend all that Christ has apprehended me for. Ephesians 6, 10-13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you would be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. There's that word wrestle again. The understanding that there is a wrestling, but against principalities and against powers, against rulers of darkness, of the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The word war. I mean, how offensive. He's somehow insinuating that we're in a war. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but that mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to obedience of Christ, in being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. 1 Timothy 1.18 For this charge I commit you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you wage a good warfare. Amen. How many of us think that the prophecy is somehow the sealed deal that it's going to happen? Nope. Right? Come on. The prophecy is a window into possibility. And he's saying now, lay hold of that prophetic promise. And with it, wage a good warfare. That literally let that impregnate with you, you with hope of that this is the desire that God has yes. for you. Now engage and exert your strength. There is a place where it's our active participation. Jude 1, 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write you, exhorting you, contend earnestly for the faith. <laughs> Philippians 1, 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you may stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That how, He's using the word striving. I mean, we are so opposed to that understanding of somehow there is work to do on our part that we engage in. And in any, um, I actually love this, verse 28, and says, And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them proof of perdition, but to you salvation. He goes on in closing in uh, verse 29, he says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The understanding that there was a place even of suffering that he had uh, that, that he had engaged in. 2 Timothy 4, 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. And this was Paul saying, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. He literally gives the summary of his life saying, I fought the good fight. It did not come easily for Paul. You know, I just want to dispel for all of you that somehow think that... Oh, we'll use Daryl as an example since he's not here. <laughs> you know, it's just so easy for Daryl. You know, he, he's married, he's got a child, I look at his life, it seems as though he just hears from God. You know, sometimes we look at other people and we don't understand the wrestle that they themselves have engaged in to break through and get to certain places in their life. But this is what you need to understand from the Word of God, if you find yourself in a place of wrestling, in a place of engaging almost in a conflict to come to fullness, or even in the place of prayer, something that is not speedily released to you, instead of adapting to our, it's a Western mindset, it's not global, there's other places in the world that definitely understand the place of prayer. But the Western mindset that somehow, if I don't circle around the car, you know, 12 times and then shout and then I don't own the car, then God's opposed to me, he's against me, and faith doesn't work. You know, it's almost like we think that we've done the one, two, threes, and we haven't seen a breakthrough or a promise, so we resolve ourselves that either the principles don't work or God hates me. Somehow it works for Simeon, it just does not work for me. But I, I, I'm going to say this to you. 
in the place of prayer, if we are to be a praying people, if we are to be a city set upon a hill and a light to all peoples, if we are to be the ecclesia, the governing body, Christ's governing body in the earth, this is what I want to say to you. We need to understand and willingly embrace the place of wrestling in the place of prayer. That that which does not come speedily, and that which does not come easily, and that which even Daniel, for 70 years, 70 years, he did not see the fulfillment of what he was praying for. For 70 years, the dew prays daily. How many of us pray a month and we lose heart? I'm praying for the ending of abortion for a month now. No changing in the laws. But that place of locking on, and number, first and foremost, if you're going to pray for something, you better make sure it's uh, validated in the Word of God. <laughs> I would hate for you to lock on to something that uh, <laughs> may possibly not be the will of God. But if you know that you're standing in agreement with the will of God, whether that's for your, obviously God's heart is for salvation. If you're going to pray for salvation, that's the heart of God. So begin to move angels and demons on behalf of that loved one that you desire to see saved. But I want the encouragement to be to us, it's hard, baby, is the understanding that that place of wrestling and struggling, number one, it's the, it is New Testament. And we find yes. it all throughout the book of Acts. Yes. They were persecuted. They were hard-pressed. It did not go their way. They were in a dark and hardened city under ungodly leaders. We have to understand the leaders during that time are literally the ones that allowed and the and were played part in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Here they are in Jerusalem. They have every excuse in the book of why they can't multiply, can't grow, and why they can't be the governing body on the earth, because there's already a wicked government. But instead, they lived in the realms of possibility. And as we close out today, what I actually want to do is, I know we prayed, we spoke very uh, loosely, more in corporate terms, but more what I actually want to do is I want to just pray over us as a body of believers. And what I want to pray is the place that we would be impregnated with hope, which is the spirit of Christ. But more than that, that we would not despise the place of struggle, the place of wrestle, that we would not be given to the cultural mindset or even in many ways the popular Christian teaching that somehow it should come with great ease when I snap my fingers and say, fire, fire, you know, as if like the fire is going to fall and my city is going to be consumed. And if it doesn't happen like that, then I walk out on the prayer meeting or I walk out on the constitution of my heart to see the inbreak of God in my generation. It's the resolve and the understanding that Daniel entered into a place of wrestling it's the understanding that his prayers, they were actually fueling angels to be sent and released. It's the understanding that even Paul said, I wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's the realm of possibility through the church that engages in the place of contending intercession. God, we thank you that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to us. God, we thank you for what you have spoken, what you have entrusted. And God, we confess to you, Father, that sometimes, Lord, we do not see it materialize, Lord, as quickly or as expediently as we would desire in our flesh. But God, I ask, Lord, that even today, Father, that you would put within us, God, a, an understanding and a perspective through the word of God, an understanding and even an embracing of what it is 
to enter into the place of prayer. Lord, what it is to wrestle against strongholds and principalities of darkness. In that place of prayer, until